Cool. Thanks so much for being here. Glad to join. I love you guys. <laughs> same. You and same. Brian. <laughs> yeah, we uh did you get a chance to listen to um our last Tech Meme Ride Home episode? I did not. I did not. And I was going to actually ask you guys about it. I really wish I had, but I've been so, so crazy busy post-launch. But I was planning on it. And I was so curious what you guys said. Do you guys (laughs) put out show notes? Because I I would have... Yeah, uh, you know Brian what? I, I, actually, that's how I'm going to uh, lead into my question to you. So, <laughs> we can get there. Okay. Uh, okay. Good. Okay. Good. Good. I am actually okay. So, uh, point of order. Now that I can rename the title of the space, I'm going to try that out. Um, let's see. I'll call this T M H or T M R H, and then future.com. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, cool. Nice. Nice. All right. That's so cool got- that you can rename in, in real time. I've actually only been in one or two other spaces, but I've never spoken in a space yet. So this is oh. my very first time with the two of you. <laughs> well, also, so I think this is the only time, this is the first time that you and I have officially uh, been on air together. What? No way. You know no. no way. Are I you kidding? So. That's not true. So. That can't be true. I'm pretty no sure. Way. Wait, let me think about this for a second. So, you interviewed Chris Dixon. I remember helping set that up. Well, um, uh, he interviewed me. Right. You set that up. Um, oh, right. But, right. Right. And then and the other was, way around, you did one later then. Yeah, I, I've done some. Yeah, but I don't think you and I have I wasn't been there. officially on air together. Yeah. No, we haven't. Because I remember I actually sent my audio guy, one of my audio guys um, over in New York to report right, that. Right, for right, you right, guys. right, 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 right. And then separately, you and I have done feed swaps and promo swaps and stuff, Indeed. but we have not actually been on together. And for, for the record, we need to change that for sure. hundred <laughs> um, percent. Well, let, uh, Chris, go ahead. Since we're already doing this, yes. go ahead and, and do the, the tee off and yep. then we can go right to it. Cool. All right, everybody. Today, what is today? Today is June 23rd. Oh my God. It's like halfway through the year. That's insane. Um, this is the Tech Meme Ride Home experience where every week, Brian and I deepen dive into a number of conversations, topics, things going on in the tech world. Um, and we are excited today to revisit um, the future.com conversation, which we started last week. And we actually have someone from the future team here who is clearly from the future. She's one of the first people to ever publish a video on the internet about Bitcoin back in 2011. I think I have that right. And Sonal and I have been friends. Going I, think, I, think that's, I think that's true. It hasn't been independently verified, but <laughs> yeah. Is, is it a public link or where can we find that video? It was a public link. It was oh. actually like, I think 2000, um, gosh, it was when I was at park, it was one of the second most yeah. cited. It's actually, it was at one time the second most cited paper after Satoshi Nakamoto's paper, the team that put this wow. up wow. and it was the paper called, um, it was about Bitcoin and it was actually, this is so funny. It was published on SlideShare, which oh, at the yes. time allowed video yeah, owned by LinkedIn and yeah. Remember that? Oblivion, yeah. Yeah. And, and park might've pulled it down and shut it down too. So I need to check on that because uh, I've actually looked for that video and it. it's not okay. up anymore, but I, I know for sure that it was definitely one of the very, very, very first, if not the first, um, I just remember being so intrigued by this Bitcoin thing back then. Well, all this is to give you, you know, credit and credibility for being on the future of so many things. Um, obviously you started off, well, I don't know if it's started off, but you spent time at park Xerox park. Um, and then I believe is you went to wired after that. And then eventually, I mean, you can give us a little bit of mm-hmm. background if you like, but, um, 
you know, now, now you're over sure, at a, a, A16Z um, working on future and their podcasting platform and all of that. So if I left anything else that's relevant, yeah. please dive in. Sure. I can quickly add one or two notes on that. But first of all, I think it's so fun to be here with you guys. And Chris, you and I, so we just, Brian and I are just jamming because as two fellow, you know, kind of early podcasters, he and I trade tips and, and advice and promos and various things as well. But um, you actually, I met you at Xerox Park. So it is kind of significant yes. that you referenced that background. Yeah. And I do think that there is sort of this weird evolution from Park to Wired to a6 and Z that all kind of comes together into what this is, this future is today. So we can definitely talk about it, but I actually think there is a thread. Or no, and I, I mean, that's actually one of the things that Brian and I love to geek out on is putting everything into context to understand like what we've been trying to solve for, mm-hmm. whether we achieved it, whether the things that have happened as a result of solving some things caused other problems. And like, just the fact mm-hmm. that you came out of a different world than let's say, you know, conventional business or finance or investment or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think also, I mean, you and Brian are both much more of the storyteller type, the ones who are seeing what's happening, trying to put it into context, <laughs> weaving together narratives. And that's to me, like the fabric of understanding where we've been and projecting into the future. So not to, well, I totally teed myself up there, but like projecting into the future, which is what you're working on now. So I, in that sense, future.com specifically. <laughs> yes. <I know. laughs> like I said, I didn't mean to do that, but you did buy the domain, so you have that. Anyways, so I'll let Brian jump in now because he had a specific question, and he can maybe tee us up based on some of the things we talked about last time. Yeah, well, first of all, um, Sone, uh, you know, we've been hearing rumors about future for a while now. Uh, you and I have even spoken about it uh, before it, it went live and things like that. So number one, congratulations on uh, it finally coming to fruition. Um First of all, uh, has Thank it you. gotten? Has it gotten the the? What, what do you what do you think the response? Um, and not even in the media, but just the response on the wider internet has been to it so far. Are you are you guys pleased with what you're yeah. seeing so far? Yeah, I, I definitely want to speak for the whole team, and I would be completely lying if I said I've read every single thing or heard every single thing. Like I actually am bummed I missed even listening to your guys' podcast discussion well, you, about you it. You know well enough not but to read for, the comments, so. <laughs> well, weirdly, I am obsessed with that. And even when I was at Wired, I, I did read the comments because I actually find them useful sure. and helpful. But really, I, you know, we are really focused on building the thing. So that right. is where right. my focus has entirely been. I've been very close to the metal. I actually have not been that involved with any of those pre-leaks or pre-conversations hmm. um, as much. So been extremely heads down on literally doing the work. And... To that point, Brian, your question about what I think the reaction is, as you can imagine, there's been definitely a variety of flavors from different camps. I personally like that there is no one definitive reaction because what we are building, and I care more about proactively what we're trying to do versus reacting to what people are doing out there, quite frankly. What we are building is attempting to fill a gap and a hunger and a need that honestly... I first saw on the podcast, when you look at the success of the podcast, which is not a small, tiny podcast, Brian, you know this, it's pretty big and pretty significant numbers. It's not all, small. All of your podcasts. Means. Yes. It, but you don't yeah. even have just the one, right? 
no right there's a whole network and certainly more you know the main show is more established than some of the newer ones etc but if you look at the industry benchmarks and podcasting like we are in the top one percent of all podcasts out there when you look at the very 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 long tail of what most shows get are you are you you able to quantify that at all There's a benchmark report that I can share that multiple benchmarks from Libsyn to this other company that just issued one early this year that I used and that actually are good. There's multiple triangulation points for this. It's actually about the industry overall. Mm. And then in terms of where we are, like certainly there's a very tall head of the Mm. tail and we're not like, I wouldn't put us up high with like, like, Oh my God, Joe Rogan or anything, but Mm. there we're certainly up there. And for tech in particular, we're, we're generally always talking those charts too. So there's a lot of significant ways to measure this. And by the way, we have very rigorous metrics, not vanity metrics, because we're on a platform that doesn't just measure plays. They're IAB certified. But my point in saying all this is that um, what we saw on the podcast is that there is such a hunger and why those numbers matter, by the way, because I don't think it just grew because, oh, if it were just about A6 and Z, I don't think people would care. Or even just like the founders talking or other people talking. I don't think people, it's an, it wasn't enough to like grow the show. There was a so, hunger for people to come understand what the future, what is happening in tech. And I think people were trying to scratch that itch. And we're trying to do that exact same thing with future.com by now using the same model of bringing in outside expanded voices that are not just our own firm and having them publish on a different site. So that's the connection. I just wanted to close that thread. So this is sort of what we kicked around last week, which was mm-hmm. um, a lot of the initial reaction was, oh, they're doing their own media thing, uh, mm-hmm. which is just going to, they're going to they're gonna talk their book. It's, it's just a PR exercise. But the words and the, the, the language that, that you and Margaret and, and Mark and, and everyone has been using. And if you go to future.com right now, you can see what I said last week was that's not what they're doing. It's, yeah. it's more, it's more of the educational thing, which is it's not, Oh, this happened and we're giving you the news. It's more, this is what we think is happening, and this is why people are making these decisions, right? So it's educational mm-hmm. in the sense that it's not just, well, these are why people in our portfolio think that these are interesting areas. It's also, this is why people in tech generally think things are going in this direction or that direction. And, and it is, mm-hmm. it's almost like the analogy that I would make is, Everything that uh, medium has been or people's individual blogs have been, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's bringing those sorts of things that like, you know, I talk about on, on my show that, you know, come to the top of tech meme and things like that, where it's like, oh my God, everyone's talking about this piece from, you know, Bern Hobart or, 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 uh, you know, uh, name anyone. <laughs> like, in fact, I'm going mm-hmm. through the, your pages right now. And like, it is things like you're, you're getting Patrick Collison to, to talk about things and, and, and all sorts of folks. It's, it's, it's more of these, it's not giving you the news. This is what happened today. It's more, mm-hmm. this is why we think this is what's happening. It's educational in that sense. Does that make sense to you? It does make sense to me. And in fact, the word sense is what I would use. It's about sense making of the ways technology is changing our lives. Like literally the way we work, live, eat, play, like every aspect of our lives. And, you know, 
Mark called it software eating the world. But really, if you really think about how we live, like every single minute, hour of our day, and now people are curious about what does this mean? And quite frankly, to your point, Brian, they need a place to go, just like they go to TechMeme to see the top news of the day, what people are talking about, to see if I want to understand, like, what is like the expert take, the best take, the definitive take on X topic, then I want to go here. It's the same way they came to our podcast to kind of get a lot of that. And what I mean is that's where the curation of that worldview comes into your point. It is not only oriented around what portfolio companies, you know, say or do. A lot of it will be pitched to us. Some of it, quite frankly, we will assign. Like, to you know, a lot of those op-eds were solicited. In fact, all of them were assigned. And some of them are pitched to us in the sense of that the writers will say, like, here's a trend I'm seeing from my vantage point. But here's what I would say are the big differentiators, um, which is one, there's a lot of amazing content out there, as you know, and TechMeme does an amazing job, Gabe and the team have done an incredible job of on TechMeme itself curating that. On your show, TechMeme Ride Home, you've done an incredible job of covering the news of the day and kind of putting it in context, which is super powerful because not everyone does that. What we're trying to do is share, if you want to know, like, what is the way to think about, like, if you look at the content, like, everyone talks about DeFi, decentralized finance. Well, here is one of the definitive DeFi explainers. It kind of answers all the questions, whether you're a big corporate or a big institution trying to understand how is this going to disrupt my world or a builder who wants to go, how do I kind of navigate this, the map and the terrain of this topic, you can come to us and you'll have that there. Okay. And, and the goal is to have that there. Let me jump in. Cause I have some thoughts. Yeah. Uh, Good. Go. This is multi-layered. So on the one hand, the fact that one, you have this, you know, background in publishing and, you know, I know you, Brian knows you. I, I feel like there's a level of integrity, you know, amongst us who both watch and participate right? It's sort of like, mm-hmm. we understand how the sausage is made. And then we are also uh, purveyors of the sausage. And we also enjoy sausage. I mean, not to extend that metaphor, it could be vegan. It's fine. Not a, not a big deal. But one of the things you said, one of the words you used was op-ed and that presumes that there's an editor. And so my question to you is about bias and about editorial. So if you think back to the way that Wired operated, you know, for the good, I don't know, 10, 15 years, Still somewhat to this day, but not so much. It feels like a lot of the mainstream media has moved against tech. There's a negative bias that says tech sucks, tech's ruined the world. It, you know, broke up democracy in our elections. And there's some truth in that, but it's also people. So I guess my question, if I think about the function that Wired had before about being a proponent of the future and sort of a rah-rah about the future, Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that you're only going to do that, but what is your editorial yeah. leaning? What is your bias? What are the things that you're saying, you know, we want more of this in the world in our media and less of yeah. that? Yeah. Well, I would say I would frame it less as pro-tech or anti-tech and less as only optimism or pessimism or any of these like kind of very narrow kind of polarities yep. and put it more as a difference between leading versus lagging indicators. And mm. in fact, we started this conversation with me being at park, right. Chris, you introduced me as kind of being on the forefront of things. Yep. And we're talking about um, this idea of, you know, what is shaping and what is kind of reacting to things. And what I mean by leading versus lagging indicators, the reason I left wired, which I loved for the record. And in many ways, there are things I just absolutely still will always love about wired. The thing that I felt was, why is the section that I'm working on relegated to a side thing? 
It's actually undiluted expert views, highly edited by me. It was extremely collaborative. Collaborative. We actually coined and were one of the, for instance, I was one of the first U.S. editors to make uh, to put Ethereum in a headline. This is like years, like it was literally a month after totally. the Ethereum white paper came out yeah. or esports. like the front desk, the copy desk fought me on what the hell is esports. <laughs> it was years before, like, you know what I mean? Like, and so these are the things. And if you think about it, like, why wasn't that stuff at the center of the magazine? And it wasn't for any reason, except that it was a different model. Well, and to, to, yeah. not to coin a term or to coin term, but you're coin terming. I'm sorry, this is nothing to do with coins, but Actually, mm-hmm. yes, in a way, like logical or thought coins, like you've provided a lens through which to understand things, either based on their positioning and relative relationship to things that already exist, or by you know saying nothing like this actually exists. So let's call it something totally exactly. new. Like Ethereum isn't exactly. connected to anything. So therefore, you don't have any bias when you come to that term. Bitcoin, even by embedding the word coin next to bit, you have a sense that it's digital currency. So it sort of is self-referential and explanatory. I mean, even for me, like with the hashtag, like it's the hash symbol and it's a label or a tag. And so it provides, it's like a step stool to getting to that sense making that you're talking about. So, Well, I, some of it does start with the label, but I would right. actually, sorry to interrupt you, Chris, but one thing I would say yeah. just to clarify this, and what I mean by leading versus lagging indicator is that sometimes it is baked into the term and sometimes you are coining a term when yep. you're doing that, yep. but it's, it's exactly this theme of curating a worldview that is both responding to the cues and signals that you're seeing, but more from the front lines than where they've already been like reported to death or more from like the leading indicators and why I came to a six and Z was I felt like at Xerox park and at wired, I had seen like a lot of things that were kind of, we were covering the past mm. and the heyday of sort of, you know, kind of uh, in that rear view. Yep. Whereas at Anderson Horowitz, I got the opportunity to be, we as a firm sit in the center of so many networks. And because of that, we get to hear from entrepreneurs, all these kind of emerging themes and, and things. Like for instance, when Chris Dixon first wrote his full stack startups post, it was because he kept seeing all these companies, entrepreneurs, describing this model that they were using as a way to bypass and, and create these companies. And so my point is that by being at that vantage point, we have those leading indicators. And so I wanted to lead with that. And that's literally the worldview Since you're asking about the worldview of future. That's the worldview is like, what are these leading indicators? And as for bias, I don't have a comment on that because I think that word is too loaded and too complicated yep. to unpack, except to say that I think everybody has some bias of some form, whether they're aware of it or not, plenty of times. And even at Wired, when we were in the pitch room, there was plenty of like points of view that were driving the pieces as well as what we would and wouldn't cover. Well, I think your bias is just towards, as you said, very you know clearly, like the future. And it's not mm-hmm. retroactive or retrospective. It's not looking... And maybe this is an interesting question as to how much do you take stock of, you know, the impact and some of the negative consequences that we're living through and trying to make sense of mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. again, cheering a future or being, you know, very open-minded about how things yeah. may turn out. Right. Yeah. We're definitely more on the ladder in terms of being, um, particularly in the sense of not to say that implications don't matter. That's actually a key thing that we ask people to cover. Maybe we that's ask a question. Really how do you bring in some of that broader context mm-hmm. that says, oh, well, when we did this last time, we kind of screwed some things up, but actually the net of it was actually quite positive. 
So how do you right. balance well, so those we're not in the business. Yeah, I can absolutely answer that one actually okay. relatively easily, which right. is we're not in the business of trying to play judge and jury on the details of that. Mm-hmm. But what we do do is ask contributors to actually share. So first of all, we situate things on the long arc of history mm-hmm. and innovation. Brian knows this, and we both are very similar in this way, yeah. where we think about where we were, where we are now, and then where we're going. And then secondly, so you kind of situate like, okay, so AI, people have been talking about the promise of quantum computing for decades, but here we now, does this advance actually get us further or is it just more hype or reality or where are we on this long arc? So that's one piece. But the second thing to answer your question about how do we sort of, um, you know, turn that forward. Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. I just had like a little mental blurb for a second, like literally just (laughs) a second ago. Can I jump in? Yeah, Uh, go ahead and jump in and I'll regather my thoughts. Yeah, if you if you cut me off, if it jumps back into your brain, um, <clears throat> one of the things that I said last week, maybe not as coherently as hopefully I'll say it now, is that let's use let's use um, NFTs as an example. If if a even a Wired or a Verge, not not to mention a Wall Street Journal, does a story on NFTs, they have to spend half of the article grounding it for. Uh, a, 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 a normal audience. Let's use the word, and I'm not being pejorative, a normal audience, right? So to what degree is this, well, can we, if every time, if, if you're going out and trying to spread ideas and, and, and talk about the future, like, can we just skip over that sort of like hand-waving about like, well, let's lay the, can we assume that people know what NFTs are so that if an essay comes out on the future, that, that it, it, we can skip all that and just go to what we want to say about NFTs? Does that make sense? Yeah, I have a very strong, it does make sense. I have a very strong opinion of that is no, we actually cannot skip that. In fact, one of my biggest mm. beliefs as an editor is that every piece should send context, should set context mm. and set it well. Interesting. Now to be clear, I don't believe that it's hand waving if it's if it's like what I hate is when people pontificate needlessly. But if it's setting context, like orienting us, like the map and the train, what is this? Why does this matter? What is this thing even? I believe the art of really good editorial is actually straddles a line where you don't make a trade-off between quote, dumbing things down or assuming knowledge and you still have depth, but you can, with really good execution on editorial, you can actually make something so deep, so nuanced and so smart while also bringing people along. That is in fact the art of a really damn good piece, whether it's in Wired, whether it's on future.com, which I would consider as our signature. And by that, what I mean is I saw even on the podcast when you mainstream things, people all over the world will read and listen if they feel that you're making things accessible as they go. I want people when they come away from something to feel smarter, like, oh, I got it. Mm. Or, oh, aha, I had an aha moment. Or, oh my God, I th- I'm thinking about this a little differently than I did before. Why, why does and that even happen if you're a deep elsewhere. expert, um, I don't have a comment on why it doesn't happen enough elsewhere, except that I think that I think every media outlet has to define their own signature for mm-hmm. how they're going to reach their audience and what their identity is. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people are often led by what they think their audience wants mm-hmm. and they often make assumptions. And if you think again with where we started here, which is this hunger, I believe so strongly that people are, we believe this as a firm, like people are so hungry for good information, smart coverage of technology. Otherwise, like I said, the podcast would not have grown so much. It's not just growing among technologists. And that is because 
people want to see and understand how is this thing changing my life? Yeah. Or you hear about everyone talking about GPT-3. Well, what is this GPT-3 thing? What is mm. really hype? Is it really going to be general AI? Or is it really going to be like, is it really going to change and take, take, I don't have to write an essay ever again. It's going to write all my essays for me. Like they want to know like what, what is actually going on? And, and Brian, you ran that episode because you thought it was one of the best episodes and takes on GPT-3. <laughs> I don't mean to like throw that in your face. Yeah, I think I it's awesome that, that you loved it. <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah. what I mean. That's what we try to do is like everyone's talking about GPT-3. I could not find, there was a lot of good re- write-ups on it to be clear, but there wasn't a single place to know like, if I want the definitive take on X, where do I go? What is the one place I can go? And we want future.com to be that one place. Okay, so uh, just this is my last question, and Chris, if you got more, but this is a practical one because it's right off of that. And of course, I, I, I didn't want to replicate that GPT thing because I couldn't have done it better, so why would I even try? Um, but if, if you're... This is the practical and 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 mm-hmm. making the sausage question. If you're a Jade Raymond, if you're, um, you know, a Pecky McCormick, do you yeah. want th- do you want them to save their best stuff for you? Is that is that your goal that oh, you want them to give you? I love this question. I love <laughs> this question so much. Can I tell you why I love this question so much? Because I think it's actually at the heart of the evolution of media. Because the world we live in today, as you well know, is that there is more incredible content out there than ever before from newsletters, like everyone's sub stacks. I can't count how many sub stacks I'm, I'm a subscribe to and read <laughs> from new media outlets to even private WhatsApp groups. Like yep. people are talking about all these things in so many different forums here, clubhouse everywhere. And my answer to that question, Brian, is that the unique differentiator I think we bring to the table. I think everyone who's like, for instance, has a sub stack, like Lenny San, you know, yep contributed to us and he can write a different piece for his audience, but he's writing for insiders and people are already following him. So when we edited him and this is a unique thing to bring to the table, one of the unique things we bring to the table is a very editorial collaboration that you get nowhere else. Like maybe the New York times for an op-ed, but it's still in a very singular style of op-ed. Whereas we're running a range of different styles of pieces from arguments to how long does this thing take to produce? That's, that's my whole point, Chris. Like there's no length. There's no arbitrary mm-hmm. limit. They range from anywhere from 800 words to like 15,000 words. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I'm never arbitrary about I, it. I mean, duration, I like how long, long does it, it take needs to be to produce these pieces? Oh, the time. Oh, it takes a lot of work and time. And to be clear, I think it's hopefully less lift, less lift on the writer's parts, but what we try to do to save them, we're trying to make it as painless for them as possible. But many of them, many of them told us how much they deeply appreciated the editorial process because most people don't ever get access to that. They don't get to with with editors. Right. Well, I I don't know if Substack is doing um, an editorial as a service thing, but it's actually just even academics. Like even when I was at Wired before Substack even existed, um, a lot of the academics I worked with would tell me like, oh my God, like we have like an in-house person who can do PR or comms or someone who can do this, but we've never actually worked with someone who's not just, you know, even a journal editor, but someone who actually helps me mainstream my ideas or like probes and challenges me for where are the gaps, where's, where's the bullshit, where are the things that I can, Mm. you know, improve, where are the things that I can, it's a really rigorous process. And if you look at the quality of the work, I hope it stands up to that. Like, I'd love your guys' feedback at some point later on what you think was, you know, better or worse. 
Okay. So I know that you're super busy working on this stuff. I've got two more questions and then we're going to bring up, um, Kaya, 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 I'm sorry. Um, and if, of course, Sonal, if you want to stick around, we'd love to have you. Um, I think the next part of our conversation is going to be super relevant. And so we'd love to get your perspective on it. But the two questions that I have before, if you choose to drop off, are one, what do you think people got wrong about this launch? It just seemed like there was a lot of negativity that, at least to me, didn't really seem warranted, except maybe the power and money thing. But, you know, that's automatic. Mm-hmm. And then the second question is, if you are successful, what does future look like in five years. Oh, I love both of those questions. And yeah, and I do have to hop off um, and I will try to like quickly listen in for a little bit of Kaya's thing just because I love the topic so much, but I do have to hop off um, and thank you guys for having me on. I think I just answered that in a really simply one way, which is I would love us to kind of evoke the kind of feeling that people had in the, you know, you mentioned Chris at the very beginning, like the early days of Wired, like future like nostalgia, kind of this excitement. Yeah. yeah, a little bit, but also mm-hmm. bigger than that though, because okay. this is a big difference. Okay. So one part of it is like, you have that excitement when it came to your inbox that, oh my God, there's a worldview. I know that there's this one place that is going to describe this really important thing that's changing our world and that people aren't talking about enough in a way that's smart and thoughtful. But the second piece, and this is really important, is also that it gives people a sense of, because the difference between Wired back then and today is that technology is everywhere now. So everybody's talking about technology in different ways. So now the next thing is how do we like bring more people into it so that they see the power for like either becoming creators or builders or even like one of my favorite things is getting messages from people listening to the podcast, for instance, or other pieces. Like when we did the crypto canon, for instance, we had a mother who was literally breastfeeding her baby and like, I can't remember what state she wrote from, but she said she came across the crypto canon and she was reading it while breastfeeding. Can you just describe what that is for the listeners who don't know? Oh, sorry. Yes. It was basically a curated uh, list of readings that I had, you know, started doing and then pulled in the rest of our team to help us. And we published it, um, which is basically like where to get started for all levels of crypto, whether you're beginner, intermediary or later. And my favorite email, I'll try to hunt it up and see if I can find it and sit, share part of the screenshot without revealing her name was she was literally breastfeeding her kid. And then she read all these articles and decided to then go into the space because wow. of reading that. And the other thing that we've done is actually had policymakers reach out to us to say, can I talk to that person who wrote or spoke about that piece? Because I love what they're talking about. I think we should propose legislation based on that. That is influence. So I want it to shape and influence the way people think yet giving them the tools and the mindsets and the frameworks that they come to their own conclusions. We're not going to tell people what to think. Got it. Um, and I've pinned um, a link to the crypto canon. Obviously you can find it pretty easily. The The one thing that I want to just hear from you, if you can, you know, comment is again, like why was there kind of this negative response or what are people getting wrong about their impression of, of yeah, future? Honestly, I, I think it's, it's too, it's not that I'm trying to avoid it at yeah. all. Frankly, I, I think it's awesome to talk about, but I think it's too complicated to distill into mm. one response. But what okay. I would say is I think like anything, I think anytime there's a mismatch when people are bringing kind of their own lens to the topic, it's kind yeah. of like that story of the blind man and the elephants. <laughs> right. Everybody's going to come at it from the, uh, from the way that they're touching the elephant. The yeah. elephant is a trunk. An elephant is the leg. Mm-hmm. An elephant is the tail. That's actually the part that cracks me up. Cause I obviously have a picture of the whole elephant. And so for me, I'm just kind of like, wow, it's what I see over and over again to, to kind of, 
address that somewhat is it's essentially filtered exactly through that person's point of view almost regardless of what we do honestly yeah to be, <laughs> for me yeah. I, I i i mean i'd say as someone that this is my job every day to keep pay attention to the zeitgeist it wasn't negative so much as it was skeptical so yeah. i mean that's not the same thing as negative that's just like we'll see we'll see you know oh mm-hmm. will will we'll, uh will these computer people make it in phones kind of thing you know what i mean that's not yeah, negative yeah. that's more we'll yeah. see yeah Totally. And by the way, this is an MVP. Like it is our first step. Like we are building. I would never want people to come away thinking like, Oh my God, we've like got it baked and figured out. Like we are absolutely evolving this as we go. And I'm super excited. I just want to leave one last note yeah. uh, before we, you guys bring Kaya on whose work I love by the way. So I'm excited to listen for a couple of minutes before I hop off, but yeah, oh, thank um, you. <laughs> yeah no, love it. Um, I love, uh, I Taylor first brought your work to my attention and I just love anything that talks about creators so smartly and thoughtfully, but um, basically I would just say that we're open for business. And if people want to contribute to us, I hope you do. If you go to future.com, there's a, at the very bottom of the link, I've written up pitch guidelines that literally lay out the whole thesis. Like it's funny that no one's writing about that because it actually says right there (laughs) what we're doing. No one has to even guess at it. That would mean people would have to like do their due diligence. So, Oh my God, seriously. And I just want to say, I love talking to you guys and I'm sorry that I can't stay longer. Oh, we love you so much. Love you guys too. Thank you so much. Absolutely, will listen to this. Thank you so much. I'm going to go on mute and uh, listen. One thing, one thing between you two though, like before you totally drop off, is mediums and formats because we're going to be talking about social audio with Kaya. And so, one of the questions that I have about future.com is where else do you see this going in terms of mediums? I mean, obviously, you guys have a huge investment in Clubhouse, so at least the firm has you know a financial future in social audio, but for you guys personally, is it important to own the property in the real estate or are you willing to, you know, in this case, you know, you're on Twitter spaces and Brian and I don't own this. And so is, is that okay? Cause one of the things that I want to unpack uh, in this part of the conversation is about whether social audio is a feature or it can be a company. And if it is a company, what needs to be behind that? And I think future and your programming and content speaks to that. And I think the fact that clubhouse hired folks from Ted to do content programming could be really important and signify where this stuff is going to go. So I'd love for you to actually, if you want to, to talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I'm going to defer to the three of you guys because that was your guys' topic, but you guys know I'm super bullish on audio in general. Totally. And as a firm, we love audio. And the thing I'll say about audio is I think people honestly falsely homogenize it like mm. text. Like no one would ever say text is like one format. Audio is many things. It can be short things. It can be conversations. It can be podcasts. It has many, many, many flavors. It can be snippets. Yeah. So I think that's something to think about. And clearly where we started this conversation is with the podcast and future is an extension of that idea of bringing outside voices and that worldview and using experts first, people who are first person experts undiluted by reporting. So direct from the expert voices. And now we're doing the exact same thing on future.com and writing. And just note that future does also include our podcast network. So it is going to be incredibly audio inclusive. So that's how I'd answer the audio question. Awesome. Thank Thank you guys. Thanks so much. Over to you. Bye guys. Bye. Kaya, welcome. 
Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free, whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com slash men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot, literally cannot live or at least work without it. 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get Get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, well, first, why don't you give us a little bit of background for yourself? Um, I know that you're at the Information Now, but you have a little bit of a longer career in media. Um, and tell us how you got into first the creator economy, and then talk to us about the piece that you recently wrote for the Information. Sure. Yeah. So I just joined the Information in April, so it's only been a few yeah, months. Congratulations. And I came on. Thank you. And I came on to launch our new creator economy newsletter. Uh, before that, I was at CNN for four years, and I covered big tech, um, mostly social media companies, um, so Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok. And I was always really drawn there to creator stories. And some of my favorite interviews that I've done are with creators and just talking about, you know, how they build a business and and seeing what's on their mind. And whenever we did stories about creators at CNN, they always really resonated. Um, and I think there was a lot of interest there. So I always wanted to make this kind of more of a full-time part of my job. So I was super excited when I saw the information was launching this. That's awesome. And so 
talk to us about like, I guess your perspective on, you know, the big, the big news, I suppose. And Brian and I have talked about this a bit, both from the creator economy perspective, you know, I think he and I are both in it. Um, but we've also been watching social audio from the get and it's been really interesting to see all the platforms now have launched, obviously, except for YouTube. Um, and we're looking at different monetization opportunities. We're looking at, um, just, sort of emergent behavior happening on each of those given right, your, by the way, yeah. by the way, I mean, one of the reasons we're talking to you is because your article from a few days ago or maybe last week was the week social audio went, social audio went mainstream because there were so many things that launched last week. It was crazy. That you literally have a table in your piece of like what this, this platform is doing versus what that platform is doing and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it was. I I do this newsletter four times a week, so I, I kind of on Thursdays and on Fridays I take a time to kind of reflect on what's happened. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this was really the week of social audio. We saw Facebook preview, Spotify launched, so it really, you know, obviously Discord and LinkedIn has been working on on a competitor too. So these competitors have been kind of lurking in the shadows, but last week to me really felt kind of like a turning point. <laughs> Turning point in the sense that, um, I mean, I guess everybody's uh, got to get their, their stuff out there, but also, do you have a sense that um, this is also on the demand side of it too, or not demand, that's the wrong way to say it, but like the audience side of it too, like as you're covering this space, um, clearly all of the platforms want to do audio rooms. What do you think uh, the general internet public thinks about audio spaces? It's a great question because I think a lot of this is being driven by the success of Clubhouse. Obviously, they've raised a ton of money from venture firms. They've had a lot of buzz. They've had some really big names drop in from Elon Musk to Justin Bieber. So I think there's a lot of buzz. And I think the invite only aspect, too, there was a time where people were really clamoring for invites. So there's definitely a lot of buzz and hype around it. Um, so I think this is definitely coming more from the competition perspective. Um, but at the same time, you do see really engaged communities on Clubhouse. So I think these platforms, especially Facebook, see a huge opportunity there to tap into the to the existing, you know, billions of users that they have. So I think it's definitely coming more from the competition side. I still think kind of the average casual social media user is not tapping into this as much. Um, just because it's still super early. I mean, we always see this. Even when Instagram launched Stories, for example, um, it wasn't like everyone was using it on day one. It's always kind of a slow adoption for kind of the mainstream audience. Oh, I was going to just say something about Facebook, and I'm kind of like, <laughs> try okay. Yeah. So my question is like, how, or do you see like their social audio rooms fitting into their overall strategies? Cause yes, I mean, certainly Facebook might've, you know, made some overtures to acquire clubhouse as they often do given the regulatory environment right now, that was probably not likely. And so it's almost a preview of what will happen if some of these regulations go through. In other words, if big tech companies are forbidden from buying upstarts, then they will just clone out the gate as opposed to even bothering with the overtures because they know that they won't be able to make those uh, acquisitions come through. So by the way, I think you were thinking of Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook might've uh, talked to them, but I don't think Facebook ever thought that they could acquire Clubhouse. Go on. Well, okay. We're, 
regardless, I feel like uh, Corp Deb divisions, you know, all circled, you know, Clubhouse at some point, um, whether they were serious or not, or just trying to figure out which features to copy. I don't know, but it it, it was it would go with the pattern that we've seen before. So I guess my my question is is a little bit about one: are is social audio kind of layering on existing communities? In other words, were people getting together and now, whether it's due to the pandemic or due to just the popularization of, you know, iPhones, mobile phones, devices with mics um, and video fatigue from work, that people are more interested in hopping onto audio? Or are these new communities forming because social audio just is creating a new type of connection for people that previously either were text inhibited or video inhibited, or they just didn't find the other mediums that compelling. Do you have a sense for where this growth is coming from? Is it cannibalizing existing behavior or is it built on existing networks? I think it's a little bit of both. And to your Facebook point, I mean, I think what's interesting is that they, they're they launching this initially just to public figures on Facebook and right. Facebook groups. So Facebook has obviously struggled, you know, with kind of being associated with being like a boomer app at this point. And, <laughs> and but what one of their their two big strengths, I think, are events and groups. A yeah. lot of people have told me that they have not deleted their Facebook yet because they're in a group that's super valuable. So it's yeah. t- very telling that they're launching this this live audio room feature to groups, which you can see there's already existing communities, really strong bonds there. So yeah. to roll that out to groups, you can see a really, you know, interesting and positive use case there. Um, on the other point, I mean, I think it's a mix. Like I, if, if someone offers me a regular phone call over a Zoom call, I'm like, yes, please. Like, I think there definitely is that fatigue of being on video all the time. And it's just nice. Like for me right now, it's nine o'clock. I don't have, you, you know, I'm not on a video. I don't have to like, you know, look presentable. I can just, you know, you know, come in and speak. And I think there's something refreshing about that. I think there's also something about the intimacy of voice. Mm. Um, for some reason, it feels more intimate than than a video. Um, there's also just, I did a story at CNN before I left about just kind of the rise of voice in general. I've noticed myself personally using a ton of voice notes during mm-hmm. the pandemic. So that's how I've, you know, stayed in touch with a lot of friends. Um, well, even just so voice messaging, it, like asynchronously. Yeah. 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 And it's just so nice. I have a friend, uh, one of my best friends moved to Dubai in the middle mm-hmm. of the pandemic and there's a big time difference and we voice note all the time. And that's our main mode of communication. So I think, Voice is definitely, you know, something that's exciting to people. And obviously we've seen podcasts be popular for a long yeah. time too. But the, the and I, I realize for everyone listening to this live right now, this is not as interactive as some social rooms might be. And that's because we're recording and we'll put this out there to the world and we'll open up later on um, in the show. But obviously interactivity is a big shift in terms of like the podcast format, the podcast format is, it's great. You know, it's high signal. Um, you know, you can play at two X. I'm sorry. I might speak, you know, fast, but you can't two X me. Um, so I guess like that's another aspect of this where it's very participatory and it's ephemeral. So it has other aspects that other mediums don't really have, um, where there's not really a permanent record per se. You can hop in a room, you could just listen, you could be multitasking, doing other things. So it's filling in a bunch of gaps. And it seems like there was a bunch of other maybe subtle behavior that was happening that then contributed to a comfort of doing this kind of on mainstream social media, whether that's video game and Discord and having those experiences 
or just having, you know, like we said, voice memos, sending stuff back and forth like that. I think one of the things that's happening now, which is interesting, and I'd love to get your, I don't know, your take reading the tea leaves, is around monetization and what that ultimately looks like. You know, Twitter coming out with ticketed spaces that go from, I don't know, anywhere from a, a dollar up to a thousand bucks per ticket is pretty interesting. I don't think that we've seen that type of audio only event um, anywhere else. So, you know, do we think that that's interesting? Is that going to, you know, blow up? Is Twitter suddenly going to hire some from TED and have their own programming? How do you uh, maybe think about that type of cultural content being produced by each of the platforms? And how important is it for each platform to invest in high quality content versus just allowing people to have kind of whatever conversations they might have amongst themselves? Yeah, I think what was interesting about doing the table in my piece is that every single one of these platforms has some sort of monetization. Even Facebook barely launched and it has monetization or plans for monetization. And I think that hasn't always been the case with these types of products. I remember when Instagram launched IGTV, which is their long-form video feature, and it was supposed to be this YouTube killer, and they had absolutely no monetization for creators. (laughs) And to make a a long-form video... That takes a lot of time and effort and production. So, and and it really didn't take off. It, it was not the, the YouTube killer that some people, you know, mused it could be. So, I think it's very, very telling that all of these platforms have some sort of monetization. Um, you're also seeing kind of monetization sprout up already naturally. So, there's you know, sponsored clubhouse rooms already, yeah. um, which are being facilitated between the creators and the brands directly. So you could see maybe Clubhouse facilitating some of that. You could see Clubhouse adding tickets. I mean, this is such a new medium. We don't know, right? Like We have no idea if this is going to be successful. There's no kind of uh, roadmap for this. We've seen kind of the creator economy is so fragmented. I talk to creators all the time and the ways they make money vary a lot. I mean, the, the number one way is still brand sponsorships, but some people make a ton of money from subscriptions or tips. So it's going to be a little bit of a trial and error, but it's super important that the monetization is there. And I think that also just speaks to the competition between these platforms. Can I, uh, I'm sorry, I stepped out uh, mm-hmm. for a second. So if I'm repeating something, um, in terms of the creator end of it, um, do you feel like audio rooms are just, I mean, one, one of the ideas about being a creator is you want to have multiple SKUs. You don't want to just be a YouTuber. You want to also, you know, maybe have a newsletter and maybe have a, you know, a, a discord and all these things. Do you feel like um, creators are treating this as another channel or do you, do you get the sense that there is uh, energy behind um, the audio space for creators? I think it depends. One complaint I've heard from creators about not wanting to be on these live audio platforms, like this is a great example of you're turning this into a podcast. People can listen to it later. There's a record of it. But I think a lot of creators are so stretched for time. So for them to put in, you know, an hour in a clubhouse room and then not be able to share that later or use that somewhere, you know, that can be challenging and and a reason that's been a deterrent for some social media influencers that I've talked to. Um, But I think others, you know, have gone all in on Clubhouse in particular and have built, you know, these communities and have reoccurring events and put a lot of time and energy into that and are finding success. Um, I think a lot of Clubhouse creators, I mean, obviously it's hard to generalize, but it seems 
like a lot are, you know, like personal branding experts and they're using that or some sort of entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneurial pursuits that they have. And then they're using that their clubhouse rooms to kind of funnel back business to themselves. So that's interesting because you're seeing less like traditional, you know, YouTubers on clubhouse, you know. One of the, one of the questions I that I would have about this, I guess, and I don't know to what degree past is, you know, prologue. Um, but thinking about all the work that you did on the creator, the early sort of creator economy, the pre-social audio creator economy, how much do you think we're going to see similar behaviors in the beginning where people are kind of figuring this stuff out? I think that one of the things that's hard for me to understand, um, and maybe it was because I was just super ignorant of this stuff for the early years of my social media life, but it feels like my experience on Spotify green rooms, for example, or green room, um, as well as clubhouse more recently has an overtly commercial vibe as opposed to being mm. more creative focused, expressive focused. I mean, that stuff does exist, but it seems to be drowned out just as like you said, sort of like kind of verbal seminars that are about selling something or getting someone to convert to some other business. Um, and I, I guess I'm just trying to understand like, is this something we've seen before? Is it likely to drown out quality content? Or is that where the content being programmed by the platform itself will be kind of, uh, you know, a pushback against that type of, uh, I hate to say it, but like droll content? Yeah, I mean, I think this is always the struggle, especially for full-time content creators. Like, they yeah. have to monetize their time. So, and I think a lot of times they creators get big, whether it's on Instagram or clubhouse because of their native original content. But yep. then at some point they have to make that transition and be like, okay, well I need to make money. And even though there's monetization options on all these platforms, none of them currently are a viable, you know, consistent revenue stream. So I think that's why you're starting to see that. I mean, I remember this in the early days of Instagram of like, you would follow these people that you thought were really interesting. And then suddenly all they're posting is ads and you're like, <laughs> whoa, what's going on? So I think like it's a very fine balance that creators always have to yeah. um, kind of walk. Of, but I think know, like the thing that I'm career. trying to understand <laughs> is how fast these platforms got popular and they kind of blew up and, you know, clubhouse certainly, whether it was December or whatever, like had this huge wave of interest and the investment money and the celebrities. And it seems like there's a faster rate at commercialization than I've seen on other platforms. And partially, I think it is because of what you're describing, right? Like there's this land grab mentality where it's like, let's create the most popular groups and let's get everybody on them and let's do follow for follows every day. And once we do that, we'll be rich and we'll make all the money. Yeah. And it yeah. feels like the sustainable way of making money on these platforms. And I don't want to, I don't know, it's hard to be sustainable on any of them as a creator, but to create content that's good, that's native to the format, that's interesting, I feel like it takes a longer gestation period as opposed to immediately jumping to how do I exploit and monetize my presence on these platforms? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, it does seem faster than usual. I mean, there are creators who spend years doing this on the side and not doing brand sponsorships at all. So it does seem like it, it's moving fast, but I think this the pace of how live audio has exploded is kind of matching that. And do you think that the companies need to do anything about that? Or do you think it's okay? Like, I guess I'm also asking, you know, there's been, you know, pushback and a reaction to different types of antisocial or negative behaviors that emerge on social platforms. Do you think that the platforms are doing enough? Do you think they need to do more? How would you rate the, the platforms in, in terms of how they're responding to this 
I guess, current moment in terms of the trends in the content. So are you talking like misinformation, like damaging content? No, not so much that, just behavior, right? Like in terms of Mm -hmm. the, when someone arrives, like, I I guess I think back to like the early days of Instagram and the content that you'd get, like was consistently high quality. It was like, you know, there was a small number of people who were using it and they were doing it to express themselves. It was a new platform for creativity and maybe it's just my experience. And so I don't want to overgeneralize because I know these platforms are also personalized and they have, you know, algorithmic feeds. But it just feels like the quality of the content has slowly eroded relative to the early days of my experience, at least on Clubhouse. So my Mm -hmm. question is about the long-term viability of these platforms, gaining enough of a foothold and sort of setting the roots that is necessary to create enduring cultures versus being overrun by, you know, weeds, you know? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I mean, I think they're with clubhouse is higher as you can kind of see, they might yeah. be going towards a direction of more formalized program and high quality content. They hired an executive from Ted and they've hired a longtime Google engineer to work on spatial audio and just kind of making the whole experience, you know, better and less of maybe like an open mic free for all, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think is what I called it in my newsletter. Right, right. Uh, but I, I think the platforms could do more to promote, you know, I think it's hard though, because it's, it's a personalized feed, but totally. they could do more to kind of promote other rooms. But I think maybe some of this comes from the fact these are getting so commercialized because there isn't a consistent revenue stream. So Clubhouse, mm-hmm. to its credit, has really put creators first from the beginning. They launched a creator program where they're paying creators, you know, a Do we know how that's going? I mean, I know that there's been like the town halls, but I feel like I don't have a good sense for... You know, I don't either. You know, I really don't either. I mean, it, it seems like they are doing all the right things. Mm. Um, so I think, but but I think some of that commercialization comes from the fact that there isn't a great way to make money otherwise. So you kind of feel like you have to press, you know, yeah. push your brand or or your you know whatever. Um, the the other side of this, uh, again, uh, to the other side of the table, you you had a. Um, Interview. I think just today, actually, with um, another friend of the show, Hunter Walk, and and yeah. talking about how uh, at least two billion dollars of investor yeah. money has been poured into creator economy startups so far this year. When you talk to <laughs> creators, is this just sort of like? Uh, boom times, man. This is like, I, boy, this is an old man analogy, but like <laughs> the, the stand-up comedy boom in the eighties or something where it's just like, it, it, everyone wants to talk to us. Money's coming at us left, right, and center. Um, th- are the creators feeling empowered right now? Um, do, do they feel like money is chasing them? So what's funny is this money's really going to these startups and the founders and very few of them are actually creators themselves. The the tool makers, the people selling the pickaxes and whatever for the gold rush, essentially. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, I spoke with a creator recently who was like, instead of investing in like the seventh, you know, backend software for creators, why don't they start investing in some creators personally? You know, so, so I think some of the creators are, are seeing all that activity. On one hand, I think it's good because it, um, just adds more credibility um, to this industry and more people are talking about it. Um, but I think a lot of that money is, you know, it's going to the entrepreneurs and the startups, not necessarily the creators themselves. Um, one more thing. And Chris, uh, forgive me if this is taking us into yeah, go a, for it. a completely different tangent, but go for it. Um, 
one of the things that I've been talking about on on our show recently is this idea of whether or not the creator economy is being held back by the app store taxes. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, I oh, did, I, I did. Topic. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, did, I have I, some math I, that I'll, I'll pin to this. Space. Right. And I said that on the show today, like if, if you, if you do a, a super follower, if someone pays you $10 a month for, for your tweets, you basically walk away with around $5 of that, but $3 of that goes to Apple or Google. And even if Twitter takes even a dollar of that, like, so in the sense that if you're a creator, so much of the rake is going to, I'm sorry, but it, 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 it's, it's rent seeking because like, <laughs> you know, Apple didn't do anything. If, 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 if Twitter, Twitter is the facilitator that would get you that $10 a month and they're only taking 10%. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm editorializing. <laughs> My question is, where do you, where, what do you think about this idea that the creator economy can't really take off if we can't figure out how these middlemen are going to um, take their, take their cuts? Yeah. So it, this is fascinating to me because, you know, some people have been talking about this for a while, but it hasn't really gotten into the public conversation until a few months ago. The first time that this was kind of sp- spoken about publicly was during the Epic Apple trial. And Epic CEO cited their creators and said, look, we're trying to make this ecosystem where creators make money. And when Apple takes 30% off t- off the top of that, that makes it really hard. And that kind of started all these complaints. We had Mark Zuckerberg very publicly you know, say, we're not going to take any creator fees. And when we do, it's going to be way less than Apple and Google. Um, Twitter yesterday cut its take. So it was originally going to take 20% of earnings from super follows and tickets. And now they're going to take 3% until a creator hits $50,000 in earnings. Um, Yeah. If you check out my pin tweet, you'll see the math. It's pretty insane. Yeah. When you look at that. So, okay. A a Twitter spaces ticket is $10. Apple gets three. The creator gets $6 and 79 cents and Twitter gets 21 cents. Yeah. So it's really it's really wild to think about. A lot of people have been calling for it to go lower. Apple and Google both make some exceptions for like small developers. So if you're if you're a small developer that makes less than a million dollars in annual revenue, they they par that. By the way, one thing that was unclear, and I don't know if you yeah. can answer this, and I I posted this to um, Kayvon. Um, hopefully, you know he'll get back to me. But um, the question that I have is whether or not all Twitter subscribers, I guess, or Twitter super follow subscribers, fall under the Twitter umbrella, or if they're independent. In other words, like if do I register as an independent developer and I get up to $2 million of revenue and then that's the lower take rate from Apple or are all Twitter super follower subscribers grouped together under Twitter as a developer. And therefore the take rate is way above 2 million because Twitter is going to make more than $2 million, $2 million from um, these sales. And so therefore the take rate is going to be 30%. So, I believe it's 30%. Yeah. That's basically what Facebook is saying. That's my assumption. Our creator tools are, yeah. So so when a company that's that's bigger than that is offering creator tools, then the creators get that haircut. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, if again, if you look at the math on mine and I applied to the Super Follows program, I don't know if I'm actually going to charge money, but if you guys want to pay me for, you know, my tweets on a monthly basis, if I convert 10% of my 100,000 or so um, followers, then I would end up making, which sounds like a great amount, like $37,000 a month, which is way more than I make now. Uh, however, it actually would start if you remove all the taxes around $54,000. So if I am able to, you know, jump over to Substack and they take 10%, I'd be doing way better than staying on Twitter and converting my followers there. I'd be making $11,000 a month for Twitter to stay on the platform. To put in perspective. Yeah. So- <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> I think that's where these startups have the advantage. And if you think about Substack and Medium and and those are all web-based. Like yeah. I don't look, I don't have a Substack app, so they don't have to deal with any of the True. Of the, of the Apple fees too. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Um and by the way, I highly doubt that I would convert 10% of my followers <laughs> into that. So <laughs> but you never know. And I bring it up only because in the Twitter app itself, they provide this little tool for estimating your potential earnings. And that's what it told me. So if you can imagine a bunch of people on, and this is another question that I have for you, which is really related to the Substack subscription fatigue question that we had going a couple months ago and then kind of died off. But if I'm able to convert 10% of my 100,000 followers on Twitter to paying me, you know, five bucks a month or whatever, how much cannibalization is going to happen from everybody else who is also trying to convert 10% of their followers into super followers? In other words, how many people are likely to super follow more than one, two, or 10 different followers? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think it just comes down to the community that the creator has built. And I mean, people, I've spoken to creators who make basically most of their earnings from Patreon, from reoccurring Hmm. membership. So it's definitely possible, but I think it depends on kind of the relationship between the fan and the creator. But yeah, I don't, I don't know how many people are going to be willing to, especially because we're so used to getting all this content for free. Totally. (laughs) And actually that's a good question, right? Like if a bunch of people have their, you know, subscribers already on Patreon or on OnlyFans, what's the likelihood that they would switch over to Twitter given that the economics actually aren't that good for them? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know that that's the question, though. It's like I said earlier, like the, the multi-skew thing, which, by the way, I think I stole from Hunter Walk. Uh, you did. Speaking of. You did. Yeah. <laughs> you did. He, said, um, yeah, he mentioned that to me, too. Not that you stole it, but he mentioned that analogy. <laughs> right. He, he's the OG so it, multi-skewer. It, it doesn't matter. It, it, it only matters so much as what uh, Kaya was saying, which is creators have only so much time and so much energy. And, you know, Taylor has done a lot of work about mm-hmm. the creator burnout and things like that. So it, it, it's not a question of you have to pick one horse. It's it's just a matter of like, you know, however many lily pads you want to, you know, plant your business on, I guess. Yeah. Should we, should we open it up? I mean, if there's folks in the audience that want to talk about this, that yeah, I think creators, about, especially. You know, yeah. Yeah. And are, are considering these different platforms and which ones you're excited about and which ones you want to invest in. Um, obviously we are on Twitter spaces and so that, you know, may skew our um, interaction, but I know I've talked to many folks who are in the audience today and who are pretty active on, you know, clubhouse and green room and other spaces. And so the degree or how those platforms treat and interact with, um, their creators with the people who are holding these conversations, I think is really important and relevant to this, this conversation. 
When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID, and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation, where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop. Laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. Let's see. We've got we've got Steve. I'm gonna bring you up, Steve. You can say something quickly if you like. And we've got Remy, we've got Morgan, um, we've got uh, Randy. We'll just bear with Twitter spaces, which has not worked for me reliably today. Okay, well, Chris, you're not the only one. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You can see Hosley laughing as well. (laughs) We've all been talking about the little bugs here and there. Okay, cool. Well, you want to say just who you are and um, what would you like to contribute? Oh, yeah. My name is Bremi. Basically, just one of the many smaller creators in social audio. And just like a. I love social audio just because most of the, the other mediums just I, I worked on being out and talking to people. That's how I worked in the real world before we went into a pandemic. So it just made sense. <laughs> also, I do want to say it's so nice to see you in the space guy. I've been following your newsletter. Just like the way you cover your stories. Phenomenal. I'm glad this conversation happened between you and Chris. Oh, thank you. Oh, and also thank you because, uh, Remy, this conversation and getting Kaya on here was thanks to you. You uh, replied and got me into a conversation, and that's how this happened. So thank you. Yeah, and I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> I literally, as soon as I, I remember, you made the post about social audio, Kaya, and I was like, this, she just—it would be phenomenal to just see her do a space and like just hear her thoughts on social audio in social audio. <laughs> what? So, what questions, Remy, do you have for Kaya? I think my biggest one is, have you had 
an experience is like ha- what has your experience been like in social audio have you, you been using a lot if you have what is what has it felt like to you great question so i am very much a lurker in social audio so like i've done like a handful of twitter spaces i have not spoken in a clubhouse room but i very much lurk and just pop into things um i think for me i do think twitter has the benefit a big benefit of the built-in network so I've been on Twitter, I think, since like 2011. So when I see spaces pop up, I'm like, oh, this is I know this person or I followed this person. This seems really interesting. Um, whereas on Clubhouse, I am still a little bit lost of like where to go and what's interesting. And I'm popping into random rooms. And, you know, I, I turned on like the maximum notifications you can get. And I was like, oh, no, this is oh, that's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> total noob move. But <laughs> so I do like pop into stuff there's one a clubhouse room that i love that's i think it's called all day dreaming and it's um a creator named hyla and it's just like these really soothing beats and no one speaks in it yes no one speaks in it everyone is just like listening and it's so soothing and i love popping into that one um i think facebook will kind of have this benefit too um but mostly i mean to me a lot like the experience is very much the same on a lot of these platforms like the interface is all similar. The functionality is pretty similar. I think like where it will differentiate is the speakers or like if you're involved in a community. There's that, no diamonds here. So yeah, <laughs> I know. I, diamonds. <laughs> also, also like I find the, the chat in greenhouse, like oh, yeah. very distracting, huh. very distracting. <laughs> interesting. I find it very interesting how I feel like, Chris, we've gone into and hosting, especially we've gone into these little threads on the timeline about this. Like, the very small differences in the UI and the little details in the room, They're how significant big of a difference yeah. it makes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the crazy. Okay, you guys are like social audio pros. For me, I I very much like come at it as like I'm just kind of like an average social media user. Like I don't spend hours. You know, Kaya, it would be really great for you, I, not to like, you know, put you on the spot too much, but yeah. being a creator or setting up your own room, like one of the things I haven't done yet that I need to do just, you know, for completeness is to schedule a room on green room and set up recording and see how that is relative to here on Twitter, where I'm juggling kind of DMS, I'm juggling my feed. I'm juggling like pinning tweets. Like, yeah, is this, and it's not you know, like you can open it on an iPad either here. It's no. like, you have to have it open on your phone yeah. and you have to share from to your space from your phone yeah so i'm a bit of a you know tweet dj right now and it's a little bit confusing whereas if i was on you know green room maybe it'd be different clubhouse has i think clubhouse has done a really good job of trying to be an app that you can you know shut off your phone basically and put in your pocket and just kind of listen on your earbuds and um, walk around and you don't really need to interact with the space too much Mm-hmm. Clubhouse that's interesting. Been... That's from like the host perspective. So yes. Since I, I that's what I'm saying. As a listener, yeah, as a listener, to me, you know, obviously there's subtle differences, but for me, it's like what the, the I one kind of imagine you with a notebook, is... like walking around in the back, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> listening, and I'm like, no, no, come up on stage here, like take the mic. I know what they tried to pull me on stage in a in a in, a, in on the Spotify one, and I was like, oh no, I, I don't know what I'm just here. I'm scared. I do not want I to go to the bathroom. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> right. Mm. Uh, who else wants to jump in here? Me. Who? Nathan. Oh, Nathan. Hey, what's up, Nathan? How much? 
I, I think I saw my buddy from college in here. I just want to give him a shout out, Carlos Aguilar. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Might have been here earlier. No, he's still here. Oh, any other questions about social audio or anything, Nathan? Did you want to contribute? Yeah, so I've been on heavily on Clubhouse. Okay. And I've also recently tried um, uh, the Green Room. Yep. I think the, the Green Room is a, vi- a bit jarring. It's kind of hard to navigate. It feels a bit too dark inside. Uh, <laughs> it is. Sort of like yeah, a dark club. Uh-huh. It's like you're, you're in this abyss and trying to figure figure a way around it. Uh, I think the, the the strongest competitor to Clubhouse is Twitter Spaces. Mm. I like the the fact that you can like have these emojis. Yep, and yep. Um, that adds some more emotion to the. Would you Would you pay for a, a Twitter space, a ticketed space? Yeah, you would. Sorry, a, a, a call was coming coming through. Oh. The end it. Yeah, <laughs> that'll kill any social audio app. So clearly, exactly. the uh, the operating system needs to adopt that. Um, yeah. Hey, you know, uh, Chris, I was going to say, not to jinx us or anything, yeah. but usually we have that. Uh, oh, yeah, one right hour around the hour. Twitter, I know. Twitter spaces. It's uh, like the Bermuda uh, Triangle of social audio. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so far, so good, but so then far, so good. I just jinxed us. Yeah. Well, I want to hear from Randy. Um, Randy, you, you've obviously got an interesting perspective on this. You're building a business uh, in the space. What's your, mm-hmm. what's your take? Um, my. It's kind of a question, half question, half statement. But I, f- I feel like each each of these audio rooms is is getting a very specific, um, re- not reputation, but more a target market. So rooms or platforms? Like, uh, sorry, platforms. Okay. Um, so I feel like green room is turned into the social platform, especially with the rise of you know of it being linked to Spotify mm. and podcasting. Um, versus now Clubhouse, I see like it's a lot more business focused. Mm. Um, Facebook, I feel like it's going to be a lot more social than it would be business focused. Um, and then Twitter Spaces, I feel like it's 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 been very tech focused as well um, in terms of the conversation. But I also have noticed that. Across all of these platforms, the rooms that I'm seeing most often, and I don't know if it's because of the algorithm, um, but it's the same people over and over and over again. So the entire purpose of the creator economy is to allow for those um, almost unseen creators to come up and be visible in front of the in front of the world. But it seems like it's the same creators, you know, double dipping everywhere to try and. Um, monetize as much as possible, right? Which is taking away opportunity as well. So Kai, what do you think of that perspective? And, and instead of these audio platforms being a push towards um, undiscovered um, creators, it, it's now more like a double dipping strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I haven't seen, I haven't been tracking that as closely, but it's something I've definitely heard. And I think just for me too, on my clubhouse, I'm like, Maybe I need to follow more people, but then I don't know who to follow. So I wish that they did a better job of kind of highlighting different rooms and different creators because it's discovery, I think, is still a challenge across the board. Um, but I would love to see them do that. I think that would be great. Because I, I, I have the same thing. I have, like, the same rooms every day on Clubhouse, and I'm like, well, what else is going on? <laughs> like, <laughs> No, you're not the only one either. I. Every day I go on to Clubhouse, and I go on to Clubhouse every day for a single room. <laughs> like, I go on for the news, news, news room in the morning, and that is the that is when I sign on the Clubhouse, and then I leave Clubhouse, and then the rest of my day is usually has no Clubhouse in it. 
I've been hearing that too, where like the people that were spending like 40 hours a week on Clubhouse, even the hosts are like, I just come in and do my thing, or I just come in for this one room and that's it. Like, it's not as much like spending hours and hours on it. And you hear a lot of the the bigger or the people that have been on for a long time. It's like, if I hold a public room, it's because I produced it. Everything else I'm doing is private. Every other room that I go on, and you'll see them in social rooms all of the time, and you'll rarely see them in a public room unless it's like a produced event. Huh. Interesting. Now, is that basically like turning into more of a, I don't know, like, like content scheduling, like a, you know, like a TV network where, you know, I mean, you know, Brian and I are now doing this every Wednesday, 6 PM PST, um, 9 PM EST. And we feel like one that's, you know, good for him and I to just kind of talk about the week's news so far, but also building that regularity means that hopefully it becomes a little bit more like appointment, you know, listening and, you know, maybe that works and people will show up for that. Are you seeing more of that, um, happening like emergently on, on clubhouse and other platforms? I think yes, but I, f- and this is just a hypothesis. Yeah. I feel like that's popping up mainly as a bid for the creators to make it more sustainable I see. for the platform or what do you mean by that? No, for them to like be a, like be able to make their rooms and then not feel burnt out because they're doing too much or they're expected oh, to I just see. open the room every day. Like I've had conversations with even people here on Twitter spaces. It's like, yeah, I can't just be popping into rooms all day anymore. Like it's just, <laughs> it makes me feel burnt out when I like produce like a 12 hour long event. And then, you know, I just want to just chill for a little bit. And then in order to chill, especially on Twitter spaces where it's all public, sometimes people hop in and expect me to be on. I think are I'm there private person. spaces on Twitter or no, not no. yet. No. Okay. No. They, they uh, yeah. will have those. That's when ticketed spaces come about where you could do your shenanigans. Oh. I do think it is cool how they said you don't have to charge them. So you could have a zero dollar ticketed space, and then from what I understand, yes, that is possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't see the point of that, but <laughs> I actually very much do for a couple reasons. One, you can hold a space. It's like, no, nah, no, nah, I really only want the crew in here. So yeah, I'm but that's kind of zero. That's you charge, but you DM your friends to come in for free. Is different than a charge space, right? Yes, but you can because you can set the limit to the number. That's like it makes sense, but I'm I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that there's like a, an ability for a pay what you want kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, we have some people who work on Twitter Spaces in the uh, audience today, so See, hopefully the she's listening. Um, <laughs> so when I started my space, I deliberately gave it a name that's easy to remember because it was monetized Monday, so people knew it was that. <laughs> And I, I did that for a reason because the saturation, I didn't want to get lost in the shuffle. So I wanted to have something that's, I'm a marketer. So I, I do things that are easy to remember because uh, that's the essence of, of marketing. Can you, can but, you uh, first introduce yourself um, if you don't mind. And then oh. second, tell us a little bit about the folks who are showing up, what they're showing up for. Are they hardcore social media people or did someone tip them off that social audio is this, you know, trending topic and they should get in now because the getting's good. The oceanfront real estate is still super cheap and you might as well, you know, plant your flag now. That's a good question. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. 
With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. So that's me? Yeah. That's my Okay, so first of all, my name is Jose Limane. Uh, I run a boutique agency, uh, marketing agency, but I use Twitter Spaces primarily to be an early adopter. I've always been relatable early adopter. So the the monetized Monday space that I created, uh, three to five Eastern Standard every Monday, was because I was looking at platforms like uh, OnlyFans, where initially there were the smaller creators were getting the lion's share of, of the revenue, and then all these celebrities started to jump in and they started to take away the revenue. Going back to the question that you mentioned before, which is like, if everybody's charging, who do you invest in, or how many people could you invest in? So there's only so much money you have to contribute to a creator. Are you going to invest the four dollars in? A little-known creator or the celebrity that you know you've seen on TV or in a rap right, video. Right. So that's the thing. So I wanted to have the preemptive discussion because when I first enter a Twitter space, I've already monetized it because I had an offering, and then I had already gotten tips before the tip jar. So I wanted to have a discussion of like I've already done this. So why aren't other people doing this? Let's just talk about how to do it, and let's talk about preparing for the tip jar for inevitably it showing up. So whether you have the tip jar or not, how do you become self-sufficient as a creator? Um, so that would kind of like the whole logic. But one question I did have, uh, oh, to address the, the, the issue of on the phone, I've actually been on the phone and in the Twitter spaces and in other apps. What? So they, they solve that. So I've been, I do a lot of testing. I've been in multiple spaces simultaneously. So I, I do crazy things. So don't follow me. I just test all stuff out. Anyway, so my question to Kaya is what percentage of the creator economy are creators supporting other creators? Do you know this information? Oh, this is fascinating. So my biggest struggle with this beat is the lack of data because this industry is so fragmented that it's really hard to get good data. Like, I would love to know that. I mean, I, I, I have no idea. I would imagine I, it's quite, I mean, I would imagine it's somewhat are the platforms not forthcoming or like if you ask them or how, what does that look like? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the platforms have the data. Kaya, but... you're the information. You need to know. <laughs> There's no com score for this yet. There's no Nielsen. <laughs> True. Yeah, that, but that's the point. There really isn't. So that's why I need to plug my database that's coming out next week. But oh. oh, what is this? At, um, <laughs> so I looked at um, US-based creator economy startups that have raised funding this year. And I'm oh. building a database of oh. creator economy startups because... There's no one else that did it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yes. I need that eyeball emoji. <laughs> Just because as soon as you said that, I was like, ooh. 
Because one of the interesting things, <clears throat> because I go to so many of these uh, social audio apps and things of that nature, one of the nice things that I notice about Haps, which is a video streaming platform, is that they reward <clears throat> the uh, frequent user of the app with creator coins that have no value intrinsically for themselves, but are specifically designed to give to other creators in the platform. So every day you jump in, they give you more coins to give away. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a kind of like gems. Exactly. And yeah. Loom did something like that too, right? Hostelene? Well, Reddit has Loom, it the with music coins app. also. Yeah. So the interesting things is gems have no intrinsic value, but in Habs, they're converted into uh, value once you give it to someone else. I'm sorry, how do you spell that? Say that again? How do you spell that? It's H-A-P-P-S dot TV. Great. So they're kind of like Chuck E. Cheese tickets. Uh Yep. Yep. (laughs) So what's nice about that is what I do is I'll host my Twitter space. Then I'll also stream it live on Habs which goes to Haps TV, it goes to Twitter, Periscope, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and also Twitch, which you can monetize, but that might violate the TOS for that. And they have an, uh, an output for other services. So as I'm having a space about monetizing spaces, I'm monetizing my space to show people how to monetize your space. Um, I, I, <laughs> first of all, yeah, go ahead. You go ahead, and then uh, I, I got one one question that we should wrap. But go ahead. Apps specifically is um, unique in that uh, it is very like a lot of so- tools we used to see for Twitter, like original t- desktop tweet deck, where you could tweet, you could post to like fifteen different social accounts. Right. The original generation of API when it was just unlimited, right? When it was easy to spam everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, what's bizarre to me, and to me, I would, I would uh, ask of the whole social audio thing in general. I keep seeing duplicates of this, um, of these apps that like uh, knock off social apps that have exactly the same function. Uh, that's normal. What the thing that boggles my mind is choosing. Out of all the types of applications to uh, shoot your shot for and, like, you know, try to make your take of uh, of an app, like a type of app, uh, any sort of, like, streaming, like, where this uh, heavy, like, media data is being streamed, I just, like, choosing to do that and take that infrastructure challenge... I do not understand. Like, I don't see any reason for like the th- not not throwaway, but like the uh, continuous flood of social audio apps that I get in my Im- email inbox. So you're saying that there's just like a lot of clones that are being produced, and it's like, why are they doing social audio? Yeah, well, not not just in this space, but like okay, even Haps. Okay, like Haps is a relatively faceless tool uh in terms of i've seen basically zero tech coverage of it uh right. in talking to its creators um but it's as powerful as restream or more uh right now um i, I just i don't understand how that happens <laughs> uh because it, like the infrastructure behind it is uh, i believe it's definitely temporary by the way anyone who's really into apps, uh, that sort of cross 
platform magic where you get to stream to a billion different video apps or a billion different video services. I mean, I guess like, yeah. So on the one hand, it feels like this is an arbitrage opportunity and it feels like people do just, you know, multiplex in order to figure out how to, you know, monetize content and there's ads inserted. So it just feels like it's supplemented in that way. By the way, I went to haps.tv and ironically, there is another conversation happening right now called social drop-in audio wars, clubhouse, Twitter spaces, Facebook audio, green room. So we've already been commoditized. This conversation is, you know, (laughs) it's already taken. It's done. Um, I, I wanted to, to actually bring this to a close. Brian had one more question for Kaya. She's been so generous with her time. We invited her on and she's uh, taken the barrage of our questions. And so I really appreciate that. Um, Brian, what do you got? Uh, just just two closers, and they're from things that were earlier. So this is kind of tying things in a bow. But right. uh, uh, you know, there's a long-standing like sense or, or sci-fi trope where. It, sometime in the future, the only economy will be we'll all have shows and we all pay to watch each other's shows and things it, like. Um, so when we're talking about this, like, you is know, that dystopic or is that future.com? Well, but see, that's the thing is that that's that's unclear, <laughs> but it does seem to be uh, coming at us rapidly like a freight train. But um, one thing, Kaya, maybe we should end on this is a lot of. A lot of us in here, as we've been saying, are early adopters, are hustlers, are people that are, uh, you know, uh, attempting to monetize this sort of thing. When when you're looking at the audio space writ large, there has to be a weird, like there's the weird internet and weird Twitter and things like that, and and we know this because there's those clubhouse rooms that have like the um, the the whale. Yeah, so, songs and things like that. Yeah. So, like, and the moan rooms and the et cetera. <laughs> is, is this medium. You never creating, bought the moan CD? No, I'm just. <laughs> is, is this medium doing things that maybe, even though we're, we all think we're on top of everything, like, is it evolving in ways that um, maybe we're not paying attention to and, and it is doing its own thing and it's going to find its own level? No. I, I think that the internet is that wasn't just, for you. has always been weird. And there's always going to be like cool and weird corners. Like on Discord, there's a server send each other all day, and like it's actually soothing. Or there's like threads. I think like that will always on every movies be kind of like weird and and like fun corners. Um, but I think live audience and that will ultimately where like. These are strong. The speakers. Kai, you seem to be breaking up a decent amount. Oh, I was no. gonna say it's 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 a sign. It's clearly a sign. We've 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 run our luck. But yeah, Kaya, yeah. listen. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you to all all of the speakers, all of the listeners, but Kaya especially, who has sat through an hour and a half of this. Yeah. Um, but given us such great insights, thank you so much. And and please plug anything you want. The information. Right. Actually, where where are people going to be able to find that database? Go ahead. Plug your newsletter. Can you Now's guys, your chance. Can you guys hear me now? Or no? yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah, so you can find it on theinformation.com. You have to be a subscriber to get access to the database, but you can sign up for my newsletter for free, and the link is in my Twitter bio. Perfect. I believe it's theinformation.com slash creator-economy. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yep. So for those I do of you listening, say, by I highly recommend her newsletter. It's absolutely fantastic. Awesome. Oh, thank you awesome. so much. 
Perfect. All right, guys. Well, this was another instance of the Tech Meme Ride Home experience. Today, we talked about the future and we talked about social audio. Um, I want to thank our guests. I want to thank Brian and for everyone else who participated today. This is going to be put out on Spacecast tomorrow. Um, you can check us out at pod.link slash Spacecast. I think it might be Camel Case. Anyways, um, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Night. Peace, y'all.